This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. I don't need to be an innovator in every single thing that I do, but if there's one or two things that really, really matter, then I've got to do it differently. Otherwise, like, what's the point of existing? And that's a little bit risky. Because when you know I go out there and I say, well, I'm going to change the way fashion is made today. And I'm going to change the face of fashion. And I'm going to take this risk and start my own business. There's always going to be a kind of status quo that doesn't really want to be changed. To be able to say, I'm going to change it in just this or that little way. That is such a powerful thing. Sarah Carson is the founder of Leota, a women's apparel company, which she has grown into a multi-million dollar business. What's more, she's done this in the highly competitive fashion industry, where only 14% of companies are run by women. Sarah also happens to be a black belt in Kung Fu. One of the things she took away from her time competing is that only constant failure can lead to constant improvement. A pretty helpful mindset mantra if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Before creating Leota, when she worked in the male-dominated world of finance, she felt she needed to hide her femininity. That's part of what inspired her quest to reinvent power dressing with Leota. Fashion for real life, as she calls it. Leota is named after her great-grandmother and is built on the principles of empowerment, size inclusivity, and optimism. Coming up, you'll hear why for Sarah, doing business differently is the only way to do business. Why Sarah believes that striving for balance is striving for mediocrity. The shock of realizing that she had limits and what she did to manage them. And the one big change Sarah made in her schedule that transformed her life. This is Million Dollar Mind. Remarkable stories of transformation and how to shift your mindset to accelerate success with entrepreneur, author, and mindset expert, Julia Pimsler. Hey, Sarah. So good to see you. Thanks for having me, Julia. I'm excited to dig in and learn more about Leota. So if you don't know Leota, it is a fashion company based in New York, which has beautiful print designs, very colorful and also very wearable, that is being sold globally. And Sarah is also one of the few women-run businesses that have made it into the multi-millions. Fashion is such a crowded field, and so many people, especially women, start fashion businesses, and very few of them scale up, and you have done that. So we're really excited to learn from you and also just to say congratulations for all that you've built. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about where Leota started. Like, when, when did the idea first come up for you? Well, I'm a former investment banker. I worked on Wall Street, and it was pretty much exactly like you saw in the movies. 100-hour work weeks, spending all-nighters cooped up in tight office lady clothes. Shoulder pads? Now I'm dating well, myself. No. Not, not they the made a pad. brief comeback, but luckily I never went the shoulder pad route. But we're talking <laughs> tight jackets and pants, basically lady versions of men's suits. And I'd be strutting down the street in L.A. or New York, and I started to see women walking around in exercise clothes. And it just made me think, 
What if we had a fashion option that felt as comfortable as yoga pants or jeans and a t-shirt, but was actually appropriate for women's lifestyles today? So I searched everywhere for this elusive garment, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I decided to make it myself. And I... With no design background or didn't go to FIT or anything like that? Not really. I mean, I majored in gender studies at Brown. I was an artist back in the day. I took painting classes at Rhode Island School of Design. But I'm a super practical firstborn I was like, let's just go for traditional success. Uh, the Work artist in finance. Life, yeah, that sounds way too scary. And it wasn't until I had a good idea for a brand that I decided, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. So I started making this particular type of clothing. They were super comfortable, stretchy, wash and wear clothes that felt as good as they looked. And I realized what I was doing is pretty much redefining power dressing for a new era. I love that. Did you first make a prototype and then like have a bunch of people try it? Or did you, how did you start? I started to get a lot of compliments and orders from friends and family. And that's when I realized I might be onto something a little bit bigger. It was beyond the hobby zone. I thought we could really do something with this. You were just making it for yourself at first. Yeah, just for fun. And when I realized how there was really this niche in the market, this need that I saw that really wasn't being fulfilled anywhere for women, and especially when you look at everything we're expected to do these days. We don't expect me to change the world in uncomfortable clothes, right? <laughs> right. Can at least have a dress that breathes and that you can walk in and that you feel confident and why not sexy in as well. And then exactly. you can go on with doing the big things you need to do in the world. I quit my job and decided to start my business and I named it Leota after my great grandmother. Oh, wow. What was, what was she like? Well, I never met her, but my family is a huge inspiration for me and they've been very supportive in me going after my dreams. And the reason I made this career change is I felt like I was leaving passion and contribution on the table in my old career. And I was ready for more. So wait, in your old career, you were working in finance. Was it like marketing or was it what aspect of finance? I was an investment banker. You were actually an investment banker. Okay. Yes. So you were an investment banker and you had the idea for a brand and a clothing company. You made what, five or 10 pieces or like, what was it like at the beginning? I created my own prototypes on my home sewing machine on my dining room table in my tiny New York City apartment. And when I decided to make a business about it, I mean, it was just me. I was hungry, scrappy, determined to build a business. And so I hopped on the subway carrying a post-it note with the name and address of a pattern maker on it and a bag of my homemade samples in the other. And I got off the subway in Manhattan's garment district. And pretty much went door to door trying to figure out sourcing and showroom representation. But I'll tell you, it is a lot different negotiating a deal for a Fortune 50 company than it is negotiating an order for 25 pink wrap dresses on 39th Street. <laughs> I can only imagine. And is that still the fashion district or is that gone now? Well, it's really changed a lot. Because I grew up in New York and my first job was actually in the garment district. I was like working as a bookkeeper in a showroom and there was whiteout. So that gives you some sense of how it's all happening. <laughs> it was not on the computer. A lot of whiteout was involved. Um, well, fashion I is still super analog. It's like very 18th century. I mean, I remember when I got some of my first orders, I picked up the phone and this boutique was like, oh, I want to send you an order. And I was like, oh, that's great. She said, 
what's your fax number? And I was like, what year was this? Fax number. I'm like, <laughs> this, it was 2012. Oh, my goodness. And I'm like, okay, I realize we're going to be kind of going back in time when it came to technology. And that was a real opportunity for us to do better for the fashion industry. But so when you went to the garment district and you found, so what did you need to find? You need to find a pattern maker, a mm-hmm. showroom. What else? What else does someone need to start up a fashion business? Well, I pretty much started my business with a box of business cards about 10 sample dresses, and a lookbook that I had made myself. Wow. And that was pretty bold to quit your job because it's not like you had money coming in yet, right? Right. And I bootstrapped my brand. The first thing I had to do is I I had to figure out how I was going to sell stuff. And I knew that I had to build volumes if I wanted to make money. And so I decided to go the wholesale route to get started. So I went to a trade show in Chicago because it was the cheapest. <laughs> this is like the strategy. <laughs> Not hard to pick which one to go to when <laughs> like, you have oh, that criteria. Right. It's like and the so, little sorting thing on Amazon, right? The cheapest. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And it worked. You know, I probably opened 12 boutique accounts at that point and just decided to grow it from there. I love that. But what was going on inside your head, right? Because were you thinking, oh, I've totally got this? Or were you like, am I a little bit crazy? Or were you channeling your grandmother, Leota, who I still want to know why it's named after her? Like, was she an entrepreneur? There's a lot of entrepreneurs in my family. We're a family of flower shops and dairy queens and diaper services and office buildings and just there's something in the like Carson genes that There's creates. this kind of figure it out yeah. attitude. And so I had already figured out how to become an investment banker with a gender studies degree. I had already figured out how to be a Kung Fu champion when I was 13 and 5'3". So I figured, well, how hard can it be? And let me tell you, when you're starting your first business, I think it's almost good what you don't know. Because sometimes right. if you knew, if you knew, right, you might not do it. I, I often liken it to having children, right? It's like if you knew how hard it was going to be to have this little tiny baby, right, you'd do it anyway. But it, you can't really describe it. Right. So, so your mindset, your entrepreneurial mindset started pretty young, it sounds like. Like when do you trace it back to? Like your first experiences of like, I'm going to just do things my way. I'm going to make it happen. Well, one thing is being in the backseat with my mom throughout my childhood. And she was and is still a community organizer. And she, as this young woman, was running for school board and delivering meals to the elderly and realized that there was no community park in our tiny rural town. And so she was like, well, we'll just figure it out. We'll raise money and do it. And so they raised me from day one to create the opportunities that I wanted. And so the concept that it wasn't going to work out, like, didn't really occur to me. And my view is, if the worst thing that can happen is failure, bring it on. Well, that might be some of your Kung Fu training, too, right? (laughs) I bet you got like, I don't know what happens in Kung Fu, you get like kicked to the mat or something. I've never done Kung Fu. What's failure in Kung Fu? Well, it's constant failure. Is it? It's constant failure because the whole idea is that you're constantly improving. So if you think about it, whatever you just did was probably not as good as you're about to do. And it's that commitment to the process that's the important thing as opposed to the result itself. For those of us who haven't done Kung Fu, Sarah, (laughs) what kind of mindset tricks or tools or tips did you take away from having done Kung Fu all those years? And I think you were a champion, right? Mm -hmm. What was the title you had? 
Yes, I'm a black belt and two-time national champion. I love so that. I had a lot of I ended up having a lot of success in that field. But as a kid, I was a bookworm. I was an artist. I was afraid of the ball. So when I saw this kung fu demonstration in a parade in my town, I was like, "Oh, that looks awesome. Let me try that." How and old so were you? I was 12. Amazing. And so it was the first time in my life that I felt strong and competent in my body. And that was an incredible feeling. And so I became obsessed with it and was really willing to do anything to succeed. Did you get your ass kicked at all? Constantly. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't know how it works. So what happens? Like, do people like tackle you or they they kick at you or what? Well, I did end up being a full contact Kung Fu fighter. Okay. And, but not everyone does that. I did it because it. I was really interested in that side of it. But the whole idea is that you get up again. I hope this doesn't sound too trite, but no matter how many times you fail, you have to just keep on getting up and keep trying. Well, that's great training to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know that Kung Fu was all about that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing to know about Kung Fu is that it's a very male-dominated sport. And so you pretty much have to hide every aspect of your femininity if you want to get ahead. And so that's exactly what I did throughout my teens as I was coming up in that field. And then when I became an investment banker, well, that sure turned out to be helpful. <laughs> right, you already knew how to woman. blend in with all the guys. <laughs> yeah. On Wall Street, I mean, come on. My whole goal was to try and be one of the guys. That makes perfect sense. That's well, good let me tell you, Juliet, I never became one of the guys. <laughs> so that's why I had to create my own network and get to know women like you and create peer mentorship programs for myself, forums where I could really get the support and I could be one of the guys within my own kind of sandbox. Well, and hang around other women who have strong drive, right? And strong opinions and want to do cool big things in the world. You don't have to be a guy to want to do those things. I grew up and spent my early career being led by white men in suits. And a lot of them were really nice. But it was impossible not to equate leadership with a certain gender and race that most of us simply could never be. So that's why I think it's really powerful women like us that are stepping up, taking their shot, and starting their own businesses, because I think we're really creating a new face of leadership. And at Leota, the boss loves red lipstick and has tattoos and has a penchant for leopard print. But that is what authority means at my right, we're, we're redefining it right now. But what was the mindset shift that you had to make when you moved from working in these all-male mm-hmm. environments, mainly all-male, you know, also very established Wall Street, mm-hmm. right? That's like what the world thinks of as success. Right. So you were in there and then you're like, oh, I'm going to go out on my own and create this company from scratch, which by the way, a woman starting a fashion company, mm-hmm. right? In most people's eyes, that's like, oh, high, high chance of failure. But for you, something different happened. So what was that? What was going on in your mind? Well, first of all, something to know about fashion is that only 14% of fashion brands are actually run by women. That's a small number. That's surprising. And for an industry that's totally focused on women and their money, I mean, how are we supposed to change that? And that's ended up being a lot of my staff and people who've worked for me over the years have specifically been interested in working for a women-owned brand and working for a brand like ours that's really standing for something. I think there's a lot of ways we can make improvements within fashion. I mean, we're talking about a business where, first of all, it's totally male-dominated. 
there's a huge negative environmental impact where you have most of the excess inventory created by brands is being destroyed or incinerated. And we decided from day one to donate every excess piece of inventory that we have. So we send that to women that are escaping domestic violence or coming out of incarceration. We send it to housing works that's, you know, helping people living with HIV AIDS. Amazing. And so it's things like that that I think really make us the new face of luxury. I think brands that stand for something is going to be part of the future. And more and more women especially, but I think all consumers care about what is this company's values? What kind of impact yeah. are they having on the world? How do they treat their employees, right? So it sounds like yeah. you've really taken a stand on all those issues. Well, it's not just the right thing to do. It's also what consumers expect of a mission-driven brand. And increasingly so. I was just reading a study that the newer generation, 11 to 16, and I have two kids in that age group, mm -hmm. when they surveyed them about how important is it mm -hmm. that a company be kind of a good actor in the world, mm -hmm. it was like, you know, 70% said that's super important to me. It was like a really high number, I think higher than ever before. You know, we grew up at a time when it's like, well, yeah. the big companies are the big companies. They do totally. whatever they want. You know, who are yeah. we to ask how they're spending their money or what they're doing with their excess inventory, right? Yeah. So I love that you're reinventing all this. Mm -hmm. So I read that at Leota, some of your core driving principles are empowerment, size inclusiveness, and optimism. I love all three of those so much. Can you speak to why those three things resonate for you and Leota? Inclusiveness is a really important trend for fashion and for life because of the internet and various things. It's had a very kind of democratizing effect on global culture where you have airspace that used to only go to politicians and the news and the billionaires that own them. It's now going to all of us, anyone with a, a Wi-Fi connection, right? And I think what that means for fashion is that it's no longer the exclusive purview of the young, thin, wealthy, light-skinned. Runway models. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so that's why Leota has been size-inclusive from day one. I mean, I have a much more democratic view of beauty than I think the old-school fashion regime does. And I actually had to fire my agency and my photographer early on in order to get a campaign shot with a plus-size model next to a what the industry calls straight-size model, in air quotes. And now I think the body positivity movement rightly demands size yes. inclusivity. But it's only because we've really stood for that as being important. And that comes through loud and clear on your website. And I also have to say that every woman I've ever met in a Leota mm -hmm. dress just yeah. seems like she feels so confident and so powerful mm -hmm. in that dress and is always really proud to say, like, this is Leota. I've had women like, look, look at the tag. Really? Like, wanting me to look, yes. I so, love that. Yeah, kudos to you on that. And part of it, I think, is really reclaiming femininity, whereas in the past, it may be something that's been held against us in the workplace or anywhere where we need to gain respect. Yes. But I so think, that's the inclusiveness part. What's the empowerment part? Well, I think that's all about feeling amazing in your own skin. And do you know that feeling where you just know you you feel amazing, you look amazing, and it's that feeling where it's just like, I could do 
anything. And for some reason, you're walking down the street and everyone's you wave it at you or telling you how cute you look that day. Right, you're like in a rom-com all of a sudden. Like, yeah. It's like, am I Jennifer you. Innocent all of a sudden? Like, what <laughs> happened? Yes. It's the best feeling. And I create Leota designs to help every woman feel that every morning when she puts it on. Amazing. Which is the opposite, it sounds like, of how you felt putting on your woman's suit going into your Wall Street job. Well, I think sometimes putting on a suit could feel like I was really important and I was so boardroom ready. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that dressing like a man shouldn't be the only way that we can feel powerful. Right. I mean, everyone should choose what makes them feel that I'm in a rom-com feeling, right? And then there are women, I think, like both of us, who, you know, we embrace this more feminine look and we want to be able to go take over the world while wearing something that's more classically feminine. Yes. And fashion is all about self-expression. Yes. Whatever that means to you. Well, and I love that you make dresses that you could actually move in, too. Did you actually do a triathlon in a Leota dress? I read that somewhere. Yes, I actually did a triathlon in a Leota dress. And I did a (laughs) 300-mile charity bike ride. I mean, in some ways, Leota is for everything you never thought you'd do in a dress. That's a great tagline. <laughs> Although we could, we, that could go X pretty quickly. <laughs> True. Um, but the, the triathlon, where did that take place? Oh, it was like a tiny triathlon in Michigan where I'm from. It yeah. was so fun. Oh, my God. Was everyone looking at you like, what are you doing? You're wearing a dress. I think a lot of times people are looking at me like that in general in life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, what makes you think you can do this? And it's like, well, watch me. I love that. And so the reason you wanted the clothes to be so breathable and comfortable and movable is is what? Help us understand why that's so important to you. Well, I think wash and wear is totally crucial in fashion. Can we please stop ironing for once and for all? And And spending all that money on dry cleaning. And it's so polluting. And so just a simple change like let's have wash and wear clothes could make a huge impact not only on your lifestyle, your pocketbook, but the um, the environment as well. So that's super important. And then being comfortable, I think, is a gift every person should have. And you should feel good in your body. I'm, I'm For some reason, I'm channeling some of those scenes in movies when there's like a big chase scene and the woman is wearing something that is so uncomfortable and you you know no one could run in. It's like, how is she fighting all those villains in those super two tight pants and three-inch heels? <laughs> we should get Leota dresses on all those action hero yes. ladies. <laughs> yes. If you're out there listening, Hollywood, we're available for your action movies. <laughs> That's right. Mission Impossible Five is going to be a woman because <laughs> that's the trend now, right? All the uh, action heroes are turning into women in the movies and she should be wearing a Leota dress. I'm going to start a campaign for that. I love that. Coming up, the shock of realizing that she had limits and what Sarah did to manage them. If you've been listening to this podcast and thinking you might want some help with your own Go Big mindset, you can get a free 45-minute Accelerate session with us, and we'll help you figure out where you're at in your business and where you need to go. Just go to scalewithjulia.com. That's scalewithjulia.com. There's a 20-minute free video training there and a place to set up a call with us. This call could be the first step in getting closer to the life you imagined when you started the business. Mention the Million Dollar Mind podcast. We'll send you a free chapter from the book Million Dollar Women, all about delegating. We look forward to hearing about the changes you'll make in your business after reading it. 
set up a call at scalewithjulia.com. mindset practices and tips and like how do you stay on track with your own mindset building Mm -hmm. a fast-growing business where there I'm sure challenges every day at every level of business what what do you do well I know there's a lot of talk about balance striving for balance is striving for mediocrity if we're trying to do everything just a little bit we're probably not going to be very good at any of it So you're an extremist. Forget balance. I'm kind of an extremist. I'm so much more into a variety of excesses. And I have found that I'm my most excited and passionate when things are a little bit out of whack, when there are a little too too much in terms of demand on my time, because then I can make a choice. I can say, well, here are the one or two things that I'm really going to care about. But then the challenge is I don't do the other things and I don't feel guilty about it. And that's not very womanlike. Most of the women I know have a lot of guilt issues around saying no. So this is this is probably one of your mindset best practices, right? It's just being Definitely. able to say no and not feel guilty. And making those choices without the guilt, I think, is totally crucial. So no balance. And where do you get that from, do you think? Well, I've always gotten really excited about being very committed to something. Like Kung Fu. Exactly. So that makes me super excited to be passionate about something. But I had to start believing in no balance out of pure desperation. Why? Learning that I had limits was a total shock. (laughs) What was the first time you figured that out? I was like, how is this possible? Because I thought, oh, anything, you know, anything's possible. I can do anything, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I still believe that. But I realized I had limits when I was starting to really get burnt out with my business. There's just too many demands on an entrepreneur. And I'm sure every entrepreneur listening can relate to that right now. Yeah. Right. And I know I've mentored some women coming up in the million dollar workshops and they're like, well, what's it like after you do a million dollars in revenue? And I'm just like, I wish I could say that it's so much easier, but it's it's even more limit setting in order to stay sane. When I was completely overwhelmed with all the demands on me, I realized once and for all that there's no way this business and all the things that are relying on me are going to be successful if we don't have a happy, strong, refreshed founder behind it. Yes. I know people say that they start businesses so that they can choose their own lifestyle and they can be in control of their time. Well, that's a joke, right? Right. The business takes (laughs) over every single corner of your life. Yeah, if you let it. If you let it. So it wasn't until a few years in business where I, I actually had to demand that I did something happen. Was there like a moment when like one season it was just so crazy and you remember you were working, you know, 23 hour days. And do you remember, was there like a moment when you had the realization? Well, one problem is that we can't time our tragedies or our successes. And so I remember one year I had a miscarriage. I got divorced. I made it to the Inc. 500. Oh, my God. And we had the opportunity to launch new product lines to lean into our size-inclusive strategy at Leota. 
And I'm like, okay, one or two of these would have been fine. All that in one year. Right. And so that's when I had to say, you know what? I'm not going to feel bad about giving up some responsibilities at work. I'm not going to feel bad. I mean, an important part of scaling a business up, which we all learn, is that you pretty much need to render yourself useless at work so that you have a business that's sellable and all that jazz. That's right. I actually felt guilty about that. I actually felt like, oh, maybe I'm shirking some responsibility. Well, and that's a mindset shift, isn't it? To go from, I'm just going to work, 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 mm-hmm. like, you know, all day, every day to, wait, I'm the leader. My role is to set the strategy and mm-hmm. hire good people and mm-hmm. make sure we have the right financing. But I'm my role is not to be here mm-hmm. 24-7 or I'll be burned out. Totally. How did you make the shift? It was out of total desperation. <laughs> Honestly, you I think to. sometimes <laughs> for me, it's like being pushed to the limit is when I finally have to start realizing that I have needs. Because you think you were just pushing all your needs down to just grow the business, work harder, work harder. Absolutely. And so when did you realize? Is there like a moment or was it gradual? I need to be told something like many times before I'll actually do it when it comes to my own needs. When it comes to the business, and I'm so hungry for advice and I'm so willing to make a change in a flash if it's the right thing for the business. And I'm very willing to be wrong. But one thing that has been hard for me to accept is that I have limits and that I do need to put myself first sometimes. And so it was only after being told that many times through my peer mentorship groups that I realized that, well, you know what, let me give this a try. That this being kind to myself thing. Right. <laughs> Let me try this thing where and it started out where I was like, okay, there's going to be one day that I'm just a week that I'm not going to be available. Nice. And a I'm, weekday or a weekend? A weekday. A weekday. Good for you. And so that day I was super nervous. I like blocked my schedule out. I was like, oh, I'm going to do deep work this day. I kept waiting for people to like try and request meetings. And then the day came and I still like woke up early and was like so ready to be in the game. And then the day passed and when things didn't fall apart, I was like, well, hey, wait a minute. Maybe, and I felt better. Maybe this is something we can go with. Maybe this is like a mental construct that I have, right? That I have to be there every minute. Totally. And what what space did that open up for you when you made that shift? It partly made me a little bit more creative and able to do the things that I'm really the best at. When I first started my business, I was hiring for my weaknesses, Mm -hmm. things that I just wasn't as good at. I brought people on to do it. But later on, I realized I also needed to be hiring away some of the things I'm really good at also. and Like what's one? Like sales. Oh, okay. I'm yeah, great, at sales. great at sales. Yeah. I'm great at sales. But there's no reason for the CEO to be a salesperson. At least in our business, that didn't necessarily make sense. So that's an example of something that bringing in the right talent and hiring away my strengths became a sort of strategic shift. That's a great tip for anybody listening who's an entrepreneur, because I know that for a lot of solopreneurs, the first hire they make is a salesperson, right? That's Mm -hmm. a very time-consuming thing that most entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. do. What do you think the mindset shift is that you have to make when you go from being like the top salesperson to hiring a salesperson, empowering them to do sales? I have always been really happy to let go of things, but I set myself up for failure in a few ways early on. And one thing I did early on was I just didn't bring on like senior enough talent in order to 
be as super efficient and profitable as possible. But if I had a do-over, Julia, I would hire more senior people sooner. I think I waited a little bit too long. And as a result, it made me a little weary of trusting some of my hires because I thought, oh, I'm probably putting this person over their head because I'm so used to hiring like an intern level person to do like a COO level job. (laughs) I mean, I can do it. Why can't you figure it out? Right. So I think if I had to do over, I would hire more senior people sooner. That's a great tip. Yes. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel that way that, you know, once you do hire people who are super competent and who can run with things and kind of plug and play, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, why didn't I do this before? Mm -hmm. Is there anything mindset wise that you wish you had done before? Like if you could give advice to you when you were starting out? Well, one thing that I wish I had valued a little more early on is valuing the things that I didn't do. And I know you're never going to get like on the cover of Forbes with the heading of like, she thought really hard about this and decided not to do it. <laughs> right? Because because the business press really values this, you know, hard charging, aggressive approach to business when a lot of times I think the behind the scenes story is that it actually took a lot, a lot of thought and it took a lot of walking away from things that don't work or don't make sense for you. And now I always try and have a beginner's mindset in business where I approach things as that there is an answer, but I don't want to make assumptions about what the answer is. And especially going into a field like fashion where I had no experience, I had a very open mind and relied on other people to teach me how to do the business. I'm sure that was a huge asset that you didn't have those preconceived notions and that you were open and willing to learn. Absolutely. But the walking away is important too. Walking away. And also I think I think it's important to be weary of advice from people that don't have skin in the game. Yeah. People always have a lot of opinions about what you should do with your business. <laughs> if I had a penny for every time I heard, you should, Julia. Oh my gosh. And so, that's why, yeah, being able to say, well, actually that's not what we're about or that's not what we're trying to do because yeah. there's opportunity cost with everything that you try, right? So if you spread too thin and you're trying out all these new ideas that everyone's mm-hmm. throwing at you, right, then right. how do you grow your core brand? And I will say totally. about Leota dresses, like I now can pick out of a room mm-hmm. a woman wearing a Leota dress. Like your brand is really distinctive and beautiful. Thank you. It is. So, you know, those no's paid off, right, in the sense that you've developed a really unique look. And I think the women who wear your dresses really know what you're about. And that's kudos to you. Thank you. Well, we've had people come in as I was scaling the business up. I was willing to take meetings with anybody who had a lot of expertise in in how to scale up this operation. All of a sudden, I was a manufacturer and a HR chief and all these jobs I'd never, ever done. And so I had this like major logistics guru come in and he was like, you know what, Sarah, the first thing you need to do is install video cameras behind everyone's desk because you just want to make sure that they're not stealing from you. Whoa. (laughs) I was like, what? I mean, on one hand, I was like, oh, is that what warehouses do? Like part of me was like, I guess I don't really have any idea. I've never owned a warehouse before. But then I was like, well, wait a sec. That doesn't make any sense. How do you build any trust with people? Um, the video just, camera like, right over Of course we're not going to do that. Um, or like, So that was one of your no's. That was an easy no. That was one of my like beep no's. Heck no, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, or, you know, there was a time when we were like super strapped for cash because we had this huge order and, you know, the cash flow when you're manufacturing something. Well, I used to run a company with inventory, so oh, I get it. Yes. I hate, so I hate much inventory. money tied up in inventory. Services business next, Julia. <laughs> So we urgently needed cash so we could deliver on this huge order with this new account. It was so exciting. So I got this term sheet that had like these outrageous covenants and it was like really, really, really bad. But I was like, well, I really need this money. And people were like, well, you should really take this. It's the best you're going to get. You know, you're an early stage startup. No one's going to give you money, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up saying no to that. That must have been hard. Well, I was freaking out because I'm like, well, how are we going to fund this order? But, you know, the timing ended up working out and – I think and what kind of mindset strength do you draw on in those moments? Like in that moment when you were going to say no, what are you drawing on to find that confidence? I'm drawing on a belief that there is always a way and that I'll figure it out. And I think with that term sheet, they ended up coming back to me like a week later after I'd said no with better terms, better terms. And I'm like, okay, well then why were you saying that this is a final offer last week? But I think sometimes telling people to bleep off can be the best thing you can do. And trusting your intuition. It sounds like you had a pretty strong sense of like, no, this is not okay. Even though I need the money and everyone's telling me to do it. Something inside was pretty firmly against it. Well, it's hard to trust my intuition when when things are challenging in the business because, well, maybe my intuition is wrong. Well, and this is why mindset is so important in business, right? And so where do you think you got that from? I think because I'd never like super duper fit in, I had to figure out another way anyway. And I found over time that the ways that I'm different can actually be a strength. If you're going to do it just like everybody else, then... Why bother? I mean, you're not, I don't need to be an innovator in every single thing that I do, but if there's one or two things that really, really matter, then I've got to do it differently. Otherwise, like, what's the point of existing? And that's a little bit risky because when, you know, I go out there and I say, well, I'm going to change the way fashion is made today and I'm going to change the face of fashion and I'm going to take this risk and start my own business. Well, that may not be the most popular idea out there because there's always going to be a kind of status quo that doesn't really want to be changed. But I think that is such a powerful thing to be able to say, I'm going to change it in just this or that little way. So I think that if I could go back and talk to like the younger Sarah, I would tell her not to worry so much about trying to be one of the guys I would tell her that those ways that she's different should really be leveraged because that's what makes you authentic and that's what makes you unique and I think ultimately successful. That's amazing. I love that. And I'm sure there's somebody listening right now who needs to hear that today. So thank you for sharing that. And especially to have the temerity to do that in the fashion world, which is so entrenched and is these billion dollar industries, you know, and so many women also do go into fashion and then retreat because it's very expensive. It's very hard to build a brand. It's very hard to stand out. So whatever mm -hmm. you've done to transcend that, I think people would really like to learn from you. You know, how did you stay on track? How did you keep your mindset strong? How did you overcome setbacks? So some of these tips are really, really helpful. I know we both do a lot of mentoring 
And you start to realize Mm -hmm. that no matter what industry someone's in, Mm -hmm. you need a lot of the same combination of perseverance and optimism and being like water around rocks, right, to make a business work. So what are some of your favorite go-to things that help you stay on track and keep growing? I think it takes a long time, much longer than I thought, to create something meaningful and sustainable for the long term. I'm a very growth-minded person. I'm not in this business to have a small business. And so I thought, well, this is just going to take off like a hockey stick and then I'm going to go do something else and blah, blah, blah. But the fact is it takes a long time to build an overnight success. And that is okay. Yes. There's such an emphasis sometimes in the entrepreneurial world, right, on like doing it fast and, you know, raise 10 million in venture capital and blow it out. But the truth is a lot of them blow up, right, not blow out. So there is something to be said for building a brand that, you know, I again, I go back to how I've seen women beaming, right, mm-hmm. in your clothes and that mm-hmm. you've been so intentional about creating this brand mm-hmm. that can make women feel like that. That doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And I draw on one of my favorite artists, Ani DeFranco. My favorite song in the whole world is called Swan Dive. And she has a line in that song that says, I don't care if they eat me alive. I've got better things to do than survive. And I love that because entrepreneurship requires so much risk and fear. And those two things are not going to go away. It's not like you can not have those things. Learning to live with that and manage it and keep a strong mindset you know, throughout the risk and the fear, right? Have the fear, do it anyway, is one of our mantras of the Million Dollar Women community, right? Because I don't like it when people say, oh, be fearless. That. Well, how do you be fearless, right? Fears are natural and normal. The right. question is, do you let it stop you from taking action? Totally. And people come to me all the time and like, oh my gosh, how do you do this? You don't seem to be stoppable at all. You're you're totally fearless. And I'm like, well, that's a myth because I have fear constantly. It's just a matter of what you're going to do with the fear. And my view is you have the fear and you behave fearlessly because as Ani says, I've got better things to do than survive. And I I'm here to go for it and do my best. And if failure is the worst that can happen, then Well, I see a lot of continued growth in the future. So tell us a little bit about where you're taking Leota next, Sarah. Well, Leota is known for the most comfortable, wearable, wash and wear fashion. And look for new separates, new pants, a little bit more of a casual wear option that are in amazing prints. And I hope you will come find us on leota.com. Awesome. And what about on social media? Can people follow you there too? Yes, at Leota New York. Super. And just last, because I'm just not going to sleep tonight unless you tell me, what is Leota like? The Leota you you named the company after. Tell us a little bit about her. Well, she was a saver. She didn't have very much money, and she would have a couple of fancy outfits that she would keep in the closet with the tags on and never wear because she was never wanted to waste anything. And I, I love that approach of being careful and being patient. And I think I take a little opposite view, which is to try and really enjoy what we have also because there will be good things again in the future. I love that. Is she your mom's mom or your dad's mom? She's my dad's grandmother. 
Oh, your dad's grandmother. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is like a great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Where was she from? Because that's like getting into the immigrant generations. Mm-hmm. She, was she from somewhere? Yeah, she was a European immigrant and she was a servant for a little girl in Illinois. Oh, wow. Like a like a nanny, like a live-in nanny mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And isn't that so cool to think of how far we've come in three generations? Well, I hope that I would make her proud. Oh, I'm sure she's beaming right now. <laughs> and I hope she's wearing a Leota dress wherever she is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and hey, before we go, what's one thing that you've read or seen recently that had a big impact on you? I love the book Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Because she tells us how to truly be honest and authentic in challenging conversations at work. Very cool. Have you changed anything about the way you do conversations at work from reading her book? Everything. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Give us one thing. Well, she talks about her relationships with some of her best bosses, like like Sheryl Sandberg, when she worked at, for her at Google. And something I really hate is giving constructive slash negative feedback. The, Hate the, it. The, the, the S-H-I-T sandwich, as we call it sometimes. Exactly. Right? Say one nice thing, say a really mean thing, and then say a nice thing at the end. Which we all know is complete BS. And so like everyone, I would just pretty much agonize over how to give feedback and you want to get it at the right time and make sure you don't hurt the person's feelings. And one thing that Kim taught me is to just say it early, often, and right away. And that's the most direct and honestly kind way that you can give constructive feedback. So that was an immediate change that I made. Well, we'll see you at the Million Dollar Women Summit. And thank you for all the mentorship you do of women coming up. I know that you are always looking for ways to help other women grow their businesses too. And so thank you for that as well. My pleasure. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this awesome conversation with Sarah, and I will see you soon. Stay brave and go big. Million Dollar Mind is a production of Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019, Julia Pimsler. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.